Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gurren, Tom Keen. It has been too, too long. Back when I had a real job, I spoke to Professor Taylor of Stanford more often. Unfortunately, now we go, can you speak to Tom at 4.30 in the morning? And <laughs> Professor Taylor, being sensible, goes, no, I don't think so. It has been too long. John Taylor of Stanford uh, University. Uh, Professor Taylor, you, you are pleading for uh, a less weird time at Jackson Hole, as you write up in your blog. Did you have a less weird time over the weekend in Jackson Hole? There was a lot of different ideas thrown around, which I think was good and good for debate. But I think there was a general feeling that, yeah, we could do a little better if our framework was had things like we had in the past when things worked well. So yeah. a little mixed, a little mixed, Tom. 42 years ago, asymptotic properties of multi-period control rules in the linear regression model. It was a nascent Taylor paper from just a few years ago. Is the economics of your early years, Professor Taylor, is it in the classroom that you teach at Stanford, your acclaimed freshman class? Are you working out of a textbook or are you making it up as you go? We got a textbook. You know, a lot of what uh, we teach the first-year students, uh, whether in college or graduate school, has been there for a while. It's kind of a good subject where there's principles and we apply them. The world changes. You find ways to apply those principles in a different situations. Yeah, so a lot of that early stuff is now in the text classroom. Referring to that that blog post that Tom just mentioned, uh, what I thought was remarkable is you were there at the beginning. You were there for the first symposium 35 years ago, back again. Uh, right. a, a lot of people listening will wonder about the, the importance of this symposium, the mark that it's made on, on economics here in the, the late 20th century, early 21st century. How different was this symposium compared to the first one you were at, and, and, and how different is the conversation these days? There was a big difference. Uh, the chair of the Fed was Paul Volcker then. He came. He did not give an opening address, so there wasn't a lot of anticipation of what he would say. People knew the policy at that point. It was really, again, getting back on track from a policy that didn't work in the, in the 70s, and it was quite successful. I think those conferences helped move the Fed in this better direction at the time. When, when you're there, <laughs> you're, you're making known you'd like to, to get back to something more normal, capital N normal. How much of, a, of an odd man out are you in the mix there? You have all of this conversation about where monetary policy is headed, what could be in the toolkit, what tools might not even have been invented yet. Uh, position yourself there among the, the mix in Jackson Hole. Well, I think there's a lot of uh, desire to, to get back to uh, a more normal time among central bankers. I think they feel that they've moved in a direction. They, there's various reasons for that, but I think there's a sense that we've got to get back, and 
And some of the things I, I say are helpful. They're welcome, I think, by some people, not everybody. But I think that's right. where it is now. Uh, Professor Tra uh, Taylor, uh, Paul Krugman has written a series of relatively wonky articles on John Hicks of 1939. There's Keynes in 36. We move on to ISLM theory, folks. It's a, a Euclidean space with a big X in the middle of it. You flunk at Stanford if you get it wrong with John Taylor. Can we hearken back to older models, or is it a Krugman nostalgia that won't work in a modern global economy? Well, that kind of work is, is quite old. I think there was an important uh, revolution in macroeconomic thinking in the, in the 70s and 80s. I think that's had an impact. I just added a new handbook of macroeconomics, uh, which got together the most recent thinking, and it doesn't hark back to those days. It's really much more modern and taking into account the global aspect of our economy. Can we hearken back to rational expectations? Can we hearken back to Lucas uh, well, I think, and the belief in, in the perfect man? It's not perfect. It's just a way of thinking about things, but it's all over the place right now. If you think about the impact of the Fed on long-term rates, the explanation of what happens to Japanese GGBs, and rational expectations is embedded in it all over the place. So that's it's the way we do things now. It's It's not perfect. It's an improvement, and we'll get better at it. I heard your conversation with Michael McKee out there in Jackson Hole. You guys talked a bit about the equilibrium uh, interest rate. For those who don't know the importance of it, why is it so important, and, and where do you see it going? Well, it's a description of, of where monetary policy should be eventually. And for many years, we thought that the federal funds rate should gravitate back to normal of around 4 percentage points. That's 2 percent real, 2 percent inflation, 4 percent nominal. But now people think it should be a little lower. Uh, we don't know how much lower. I don't agree with all of that, but there's some evidence for it. So the import is where, the, where it will go eventually. Uh, there is an argument it doesn't matter so much now. It's got to raise rates. Right. What does it matter if it's 3 or 4 eventually? You served the country at a time of immense tumult, and so much of that was communicating message. Uh, we all stand in awe of the microanalysis of the Fed. How do we get back to a, an appropriate communication strategy that benefits our economists uh, and their crystal ball? How do we get back to something intelligent in communications? The, the most important thing is to have a, a policy that is more strategic, less tactical, and then communicate about that strategy. A lot of people don't think the Fed has a framework right now. So if they had a strategic framework, really like they had in much of the 80s and 90s, communication would be easier. What kind of framework would it be? Does it border on Taylor Rule? Does it border on an equivalency to New Zealand or others that have been lauded for a more stringent set of rules? It's uh, more rule-like, uh, to be sure, What whatever rule you want think is best at the time. Uh, I think there's a lot of information out there that shows that that works better. People have a sense of where the Fed is. There's not so much back and forth. It's, yeah. it's strategic. John B. Taylor with us. He is at Stanford University, of course, one of our nation's great economists. Um, I'll get it out. Economists of uh, his vintage, but of a modern era as well. Professor Taylor, you write beautifully about CBO and their crystal clear analysis of our fiscal policy. Can we dovetail and mate 
CBO caution about our fiscal future with the primal scream for fiscal authorities to help central bankers like yourself? Well, I think some of the issues are, are similar. There's this big increase in the deficit this year by 35%, and CBOs projecting it will that will go up higher in the future. So that's kind of a another way in which policy needs to get corrected, some kind of reforms on the fiscal side. I think it's quite important. We'll bring up again uh, Christopher Sims, who we've been talking about throughout the morning here, and, yeah. and, and his uh, clarion that he sounded at Jackson Hole being, you know, the, the more we talk about monetary policy, the more we focus on monetary policy, the, the, uh, the need for policymakers, for politicians to focus on fiscal policy diminishes. What's your reaction to what, uh, what Professor Sims had to say in Jackson Hole? Well, I think that's what we've seen now for for years. People look pointing to central banks as being able to do so many things, and you know, monetary policy can do a few things. It can keep inflation in line, but it can't make growth higher. And and growth-inducing policies are what we need. It's that's where tax reform comes in. That's where regulatory reform comes in. I think many of us have been arguing that, and I'm I'm glad to hear the discussions. Moving in that direction, I hope it continues. What's your reaction to what we hear from the major party candidates on the campaign trail now? Hillary Clinton saying we need about $500 billion worth of spending on infrastructure. Donald Trump saying even more money than that. When we talk about jump-starting the economy, jump-starting growth, is what they're saying making sense? I think the way to jump-start the economy is to is for the, these tax reforms and regulatory reforms. We had a huge experience with fiscal stimulus Back in, in 2009, 2010, it petered out. It didn't work. We have a lot of evidence. So it's not so much a stimulus that's important. It's reform. And I think infrastructure spending reform is part of that. Uh, let us switch, uh, Professor Taylor, to where we are now in terms of measured. Long ago and far away, we had measured interest rate increases. Where did that come from in our banking history? Did you support measured? And where did it come from? Well, the term measured usually refers to this idea of forward guidance, that the interest rates will increase by a certain amount. I think that that what has to happen is any kind of forward guidance has to be consistent with the policy. You can't try to mislead investors, mislead people by this. It has to be consistent with your policy. And and if we move in that direction more, I think it'll be good. That's how it was in much of the 80s and 90s when things were working better. You and uh, Stanley Fisher have talked about our nominal rigidities. We have, we have a, a thickness within our system. Is that ever more so today? Are we in our distortion of negative rates and the unique finance we're dealing with? Are we ever more nominally rigid? That's a good question. I think it's about the same, and I think the innovation that occurred in models to, of the economy was to bring that in, because there are rigidities. Things don't instantaneously change. I don't think it's gotten uh, more severe. If anything, there's more flexibility, the globalization, capital flows. So I don't think right. that's really changed that much. That's right where I wanted to go, globalization and capital flows, and that goes back to what we talked about with uh, Professor Krugman and uh, his yearning for a more Hicksian-like model of 1939. Professor Taylor, do we solve this problem within those global flows with currency adjustment. Is that really where we're going five years down the road? Yes. If it's not dictated so much by the central bank policy, we've had a problem with uh, 
Sometimes it's called uh, monetary con- policy contagion. Sometimes it's called beggar thy neighbor policy, where there's a, an active attempt to change the exchange rate to stimulate the economy, and that really is not productive. You get into currency wars and bad policy like that. So I think a flexible exchange rate system works well. That's what Milton Friedman argued for. It came into play with a lot of work. And I think if we combine that with a good strategic monetary policy and an aversion to intervene into capital flows, things could work better. I wonder what you make of your local Fed president, the the presidency of the San Francisco Fed, John Williams, who has been uh, at the forefront over these last weeks, advancing a number of different ideas. I think about his call to perhaps revise the the, the GDP growth rate targets. Um, what do you make of, of of that, Professor Taylor? Of of the, the the innovations that John Williams seems to be pushing for here, maybe not in the short term, but in the medium to long term. Well, John Williams is a good friend. He's a former student. I think he, he's doing a good job. He also has done much of the research on this idea of the real long-term interest rate changing and have some disagreements with that. In terms of throwing out new kinds of policies, I think most important, and, and John's argued for this, is we need a rules-based policy. Uh, he's talking about different kinds of rules, but that's, what's, that's okay. what I think is good, rules-based policy. Well, rule, we know, we, uh, Professor Taylor, we know that. On a rules-based policy, a la John Hilsenrath in the journal Friday, did this Fed blow it and they should have raised rates a long time ago? I think so. I think if they got started on this earlier, we would be in better shape okay. at this point in time. Well, we're not. That's water under the uh, proverbial Stanford <laughs> Snake River Bridge. Bridge yeah. it's, under the, it's water under the Keynesian Bridge. Uh, Professor Taylor, do they need to raise rates in September? And critically, do they do it within a one-or-done strategy to then become more data-dependent? Or would you suggest they be so bold as to be measured and have a vector out into the future that we can hang our hat on? Yeah, I think they need to say where we're going. The new policy will be in this direction, more rules-based. Will that cause a recession? Will they? I mean, Larry Summers does not agree with you on this. Will this cause a stagflation of a Summers proportion? Well, what the problem is now, policy has been confusing to people. People don't think the Fed has a framework when you do surveys. They need to do that, and part of that is a, is a gradual, uh, clear uh, movement of the interest rates up. They're still very low by historical standards, and it doesn't have to be overnight. It shouldn't be overnight, but it should be gradual, and whether they got started earlier or not, they should move in that direction now. I think of what you're saying. I think of the Hilsenrath piece that Tom just brought up. I, I, I sense there is, is maybe a bit of a, a tide turning here, that the, the, the public... The, the public that pays attention to this stuff is getting uh, a bit fed up with the nuance, a bit confused about what's going on here. What's going to be the turning point, Professor Taylor? What's going to what's going to make the Fed be clearer and more rules focused and, and more regimented uh, as you describe it? I think you have to go back to the past to see what happened, quite frankly, because we were in a not such a good monetary policy in the in the 70s. It changed. There were new personnel, new ideas. That's what's going to happen. And I think discussions like this, the Hills and the Peace, all those are part of it. It doesn't happen overnight. I wish it happened a little sooner, but we keep working at it, and it'll change. Are you going to teach this fall at Stanford? I'll be giving lectures here and there this fall, both at Stanford and other places, both in Europe and Japan, and I'm I'm, I'm speaking out as much as I can, Tom. Uh, What will be your single message to the great freshman, graduate, and undergraduate students at Stanford? Well, that there's 
economics is a wonderful subject. Uh, it applies. Uh, let me convince you guys how much you should love it like I love it. I like that idea. John mm-hmm. Taylor, never enough time. Thank you so much for coming on in his early Palo Alto morning. John Taylor at Jackson Hole. He has re- returned to his Stanford. thrilled to bring you Peter Hooper of International Economics, working with Michael Spencer and others at uh, Deutsche Bank. Uh, and again, we, we've, we've talked about some of this, Peter, this morning, but I really think it's so important. We need to redo it in the 7 o'clock hour worldwide. Christopher Sims uh, of, uh, of Princeton made very clear this is about fiscal policy. Everybody talked about it. It's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to do it. Do your Washington team, do your London team look for a political energy to create fiscal? Well, unfortunately, Tom, it's going to take uh, a lot of pressure on the political system to bring it about in a big way. I mean, I I will say we are getting a little fiscal expansion this year. We do see something in Europe. Uh, We we see a little bit in the U.S., uh, and and there's enough to add several tenths, perhaps, to to global GDP growth. We put out a a research brief on this about a month ago. But to, to get really meaningful fiscal action where it really is going to count, and Europe is number one. Uh, The U.S. is not really in that much need of fiscal action right now. We're very close to full employment. The Fed's starting to raise interest rates. The last thing we need is a major fiscal expansion. And this goes to Benoit Carré's energy this weekend of the ECB, the French economist. Let's go. Yes, he said, look, if if, if, if we're not getting action elsewhere... Uh, meaning the fiscal authorities, right. uh, then we're prepared to do what it takes or do, uh, to do more. I want to review a call here. You've got a 120 call week sterling. What is the Deutsche Bank call on euro that infects and forms your economic uh, opinion and view? We think, we think the euro, I mean, uh, we, we, had, we had the view uh, previously that the euro would be going through parity over the next year. Uh, we still think there will be movement in that direction, and certainly with the Fed uh, uh, raising rates at least a couple times, uh, and, and ECB, <clears throat> as far as the eye can see, uh, pushing, pushing on monetary expansion, um, this is going to be, yeah. it means further movement in the Europe. I'm going to call it not an outlier call. David Guru with me this morning. David, wonderful to have you with us helping out as McKee uh, takes the golf screen. But David Guru, I want to make clear the outlier call, maybe it's HSBC, but Deutsche Bank was first with a forceful call for weak sterling and weaker euro as well. David, good morning. Morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it and, and enjoy the conversation, the, the first hour here with, uh, with Peter Hooper. Peter, let me just ask you uh, about your general reaction to that speech, and we're also focused on those 17 words that Janet Yellen said. I believe the, the case for an increase in the federal funds rate has strengthened in recent months. How, how in line is that with what you're, you're thinking right now? Uh, very much in line. Uh, I think, I think cer- certainly we, we had a... A pretty good hint from uh, Bill Dudley um, uh, just just before the minutes came out. Then we got the minutes uh, to, to the July meeting, uh, indicating a bottom line that uh, some some folks on the committee are, are thinking that we need to uh, raise rates soon. Uh, Janet was careful to stay away from yeah. exact calendar guidance from September for, from giving us a point in time, but to say to say that the case has strengthened uh, to be there uh, it, it you know. Pictorially, uh, alongside uh, <coughs> both of our vice chair 
vice chair of the FOMC, Bill Dudley, vice chair of the uh, Board of Governors, uh, Stan Fisher. This is a strong leadership that is, I think, united on this point. Uh, right. And, and uh, they're, they're, obviously, Dr. They're, Hooper, it's still data-driven. Friday's number is going to be very important. We're on radio. They can't see the promenade. So let's describe it for David Gurr and Peter Hooper and you right now. Every I've done this, folks. I've actually been there, been there, been there. When the elite walks by, it is hilarious. This is like, it's seriously like a Saturday Night Live skit. They're in the lodge, and everybody begins assembling out where we are in other uh, media organizations, overlooking the elk and the grizzly bear and the mountains in the, uh, the distance, and then summoning out of a door. Who will it be? Who will come out of the door? Will it be Kuroda and Yellen? Will it be Yellen with some person you don't even know in economics? Or will it be some ancient worthy that's there for one last tour? <laughs> no, this year it was Dudley of New York, Vice Chairman Fisher, who I've got the luxury of speaking to at tomorrow. So come on, Peter, what is the significance that the Troika, the Troika came out? Okay. Uh, Mr. Fisher is viewed as being a little more hawkish. Mr. Dudley, perhaps, uh, slightly on the dovish side. Uh, and Yellen, clearly viewed as being somewhat dovish. And there's always going to be... Qu- there have been questions. Are these people disagreeing? Is, uh, right. uh, they are very much in agreement on this. Okay? They are, and that photo op was a clear statement to, to that effect. No, no question. I mean, they, they, as you say, they, they paraded in front of the cameras, they stood on the balcony, they watched the mountain, and they discussed things. And they, yeah, they were... and, and, and David, when they come out, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> You're hoping that some bison are there for them to see, exactly. David, jump in, please. Yeah, I, you know, Peter, you mentioned that jobs number coming out this week. What, what does that headline number have to be? You mentioned it's important. How important is it, and what are you looking for uh, on Friday? Well, I was interested, interested to hear uh, Stan Fisher uh, talk over the weekend and say that, you know, the, what we need is something between 75 and 125, uh, maybe 150, um, <clears throat> given, given the likelihood that we're, we're going to see some movement in, in uh, labor force participation one way or another. Uh, there's some uncertainty here. But clearly anything in the 150-plus range I think is sufficient uh, drives home the point that the labor market is still expanding at a decent pace. Uh, If it's over 200, um, so much the better. Dr. Hooper, your colleague in crime, Dr. Constum, of the strategy (laughs) side, was just brilliant on surveillance last week. And he put out a terse few lines. Thanks, Zero Hedge, for uh, bringing this to my attention. And Dr. Constum went right where you would go, which is a real rate inflation-adjusted analysis. Mm -hmm. So it's Monday, and we're going to do a little radio geometrics here, folks. Get out your pencils. Yeah, exactly. Well, get out your (laughs) pencil, at least your bow tie. The, The nominal rate goes up while inflation is increasing. Right. Do you worry about acceleration or convexity or a second derivative where the Fed has to raise rates faster because inflation comes up so rapidly to help you and Mr. Constum towards a better real rate? (laughs) I leave the convexity issues to our strategists, and there's nobody better than Dominic Constum on this. But I think it's very clear that Fed funds rate currently is below neutral. Neutral has been declining a bit of late, but it is comfortably below neutral. Mm -hmm. It has a way to go up. It will also go up in nominal terms because inflation is below target. Inflation around 1.5% core, less than that overall headline. 
as inflation moves up to 2%, the Fed funds rate is going to have to move up as well. How the long end responds to all of this depends on a lot of factors, including what's going on abroad. You know, are, are, are we still facing significantly negative government interest rates in, in, uh, uh, in Europe and Japan? Uh, and that is a factor holding down. Um, where the long end goes also influences how fast the Fed acts. But bottom line, uh, if, if, the labor, if the labor market's tightening and the economy is tightening and we right. do start to see some significant inflation pressure, then, yes, the Fed's yeah. going to have to act a little more aggressively. David Guru with me uh, here as well. David, were you, like, riveted on Jackson Hole? I want you to know, uh, I have a, I have a sister who lives out there who looks for hawks and doves of a different stripe. She's an ornithologist in Jackson Hole. So anytime I see pictures of the Grand Tetons, my eyes. Probably is, listens is, to Tom Rush of them in her free time. Peter Hooper <laughs> with us with Deutsche Bank. Peter, um, Chris uh, Sims of Princeton getting the, the press over his paper on fiscal policy. Marvin Goodfriend of Carnegie Mellon wrote an important paper. I'll do this on television here in a bit. And Professor Goodfriend harkens back to Irving Fisher of 1930 and Newt Wicksell of 1898 in the year of Keynes, 1936, wistful for another time. I would suggest, Peter Hooper, that our analysis of economics now is done in a far more global environment. How does currency play into the monetary view forward, whether it's Christopher Sims, it's Marvin Goodfriend, or it's Peter Hooper? How does currency float in? Well, obviously, currency is a very important part of uh, your financial conditions. Uh, if the dollar continues to rise and it rises at a significant pace, that's going to slow the rate at which the Fed tightens, no question. Uh, Fed ultimately sees, sees financial conditions as uh, governing the speed of growth in the economy and where we get to ultimately on inflation. Uh, how fast a dollar goes up is obviously a very important part of that. I mean, I look at this, David Girl, the idea here of Deutsche Bank at a 120 sterling, a weaker euro, others with an outlier call. I'm not predicting that, but if you get that sense of weaker currency, dollar dynamics to me is critical to all of this calculus. Uh, no, no, no question. I think I think you, you mentioned the Good Friend paper. Uh, if I can uh, sl slip aside here, he talks about negative interest rates. Uh, interesting that uh, ECB commentary of the Fed, uh, Mr. Query, uh, saying ECB would do whatever it takes. I think we're getting into some dangerous territory here. Uh, Good friend was in favor of interest rates, but going back to the models uh, and the history that he talked about, the world has changed. It used to be that uh, we, would go, we would favor negative interest rates because that's going to dis discourage saving. It's going to encourage spending. But with a baby boom generation these days uh, uh, sitting on nest eggs that uh, they thought were going to support retirement, suddenly realizing that, ooh, interest rates are <laughs> maybe close to zero, maybe even negative, uh, you have to save more to, to uh, support your retirement. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's not being anywhere near as productive mm -hmm. as, as hoped and could be backfiring. Peter, were you surprised at all at the degree to which negative rates weren't discussed by Janet Yellen? Say We talk about the conspicuousness of her there with Stan Fisher and, and the president of the New York Fed, uh, a 24-25 a page paper, no mention of them. Surprising to you in light of the fact that that is the, the, the global, the, the macro conversation we're having about yeah. central banking? Uh, I, yes, I think uh, there, there was a message there. Fisher did, did touch on the sure. point, but he said, uh, but of course, this is not something we're uh, entertaining in at all uh, anytime soon, certainly. Um, 
Uh, it is entering into, maybe may entering into the discussion a little bit, but, but uh, uh, I think that the Fed is a long ways away, fortunately, from uh, the, the rest of the world on, on this one. Uh, I, think, I think the, I mean, you have to keep in mind, uh, the, the banking sector is important to credit creation and uh, how monetary policy is transmitted uh, to the economy uh, does depend on, on what, what, what are the decisions of those who uh, create credit. And if, if, your, if your margin is going to be disappearing, uh, you're not going to be encouraged to extend credit. I look, Peter Hooper, it all, we only have one minute left. I'm so sorry for that. We just get to productivity. I mean, that is the backdrop. And to use a Greenspanian word, that is the conundrum, isn't it? Uh, ab absolutely. We're going to get some productivity numbers again this week. Productivity has actually been declining. It's been the weakest we've seen uh, historically for the U.S. over the last uh, five years. Uh, it's going to take a significant increase in investment by firms down the road. This means reducing uncertainty in the U.S. and global economy. That's the bottom line as far as I can see. Peter Hooper, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Deutsche Bank. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David, economists, economists. On the other hand, we could talk with someone in fixed income. Ira Jersey with Oppenheimer Funds, uh, for years uh, opining and forecasting and now advising portfolio managers on what to actually do with their money. Um, Ira, uh, one of the great joys you have is the people you speak to at Oppenheimer Funds are smart, smart, smart. If the curve flattens... There's two ways it could do well, it could do it three, four ways, but let's go to two. <laughs> two year yield up, 10 year yield down flat, or the other way where the 10 year yield comes in with a vengeance. Right now, I'm seeing a higher two year yield and a flat to lower 10 year yield. Is that a good thing? And is that a different thing? Do you make a distinction with how we flatten? Well, we we do, and I think that something that's unusual is that um, you know this has really been a, a serious what we call bull flattener. So, if you go back in time to um, to 2014 and you look at how the curve has flattened, it's mostly been because the 10-year yield has gone from three percent all the way down to one and a half percent, and you know that that's different than other periods of time. So I know a lot of people say, "Oh, look, the curve's so flat. This has to be uh, forecasting a recession." because every time the curve gets this flat, we've had a recession within 12 months, except that those are, those are the bear flatteners. Those are the first thing that you described where you had policy rates going up, you had two-year yields going up, and, and, and generally speaking, you had tighter monetary conditions. Now you're getting a curve flattening in easier monetary conditions because of the expectation that interest rates and inflation are going to remain low for a very long period of time. So you're not worried about the, the specter of a recession right now, it sounds like. I'm not worried about a recession, primarily because you, uh, a lot of the fundamental data that, that I look at has tended to be um, 
very stable. So you look at the, and we'll get some of that data at 8:30 today when we get the personal income and spending numbers. I think one of the things that's going on in in the world is we have to remember that growth is unappealingly low. Um, but that's only in the context of the last 30 years. If you go back in in time, it's not unusual. Uh, like the the old norm, I would call it, was for real GDP growth to be two and a half, three percent, which is pretty much where we are, um, and uh, inflation to be very uh, subdued. And and that's just not something that's been in our psyche because none of us have lived through that period of time, or very few of us have. Um, but you go back to the 1920s and 1950s, you go back even into the 19th century, and you see that that's kind of the normal state of the world. And, and I think that, that's, that the fact we don't have fast growth means that this is more sustainable. So I'm not so worried about falling into recession over the next 12, to two, uh, 12 months to two years. What I am worried about is, you know, will we keep uh, rates low for a bit longer than we should. Um, and I don't think that's a problem for this year. I really think that's a problem for, for 2017. Our friends at Pantheon Macroeconomics using the phrase blunt but unspecific to describe what Janet Yellen uh, had to say <laughs> on Friday. What was your read on, on her speech? And uh, indeed, there, there wasn't a, a, a very well-defined timetable there. What was your sense of what she was, she was indicating? Yeah, I think she was hinting at exactly what the uh, Federal Reserve has been saying is that they want to raise interest rates, but they don't quite um, get the data that they need in order to be convinced that they should. And um, so, so more than likely, the, the Fed is going to hike once this year. You know, when, when we say gradual hikes, maybe they mean once a year. Um, you know, the market doesn't believe that a that a September hike is in the works. Uh, depending on your model, my model says there's about a one in three chance that they'll hike in September. Um, I know the WIRP function on Bloomberg says about a forty percent chance. Um, but, it, it, you know, the market is now pricing for a December hike. Um, so, you know, a December hike would not surprise the market, would not rattle markets much at all. I think if they hiked in September, on the other hand, that would be a surprise and that the markets would hike. But maybe they want to get back the initiative. I mean, one of the things that the Fed's communication policy has done is really confuse people, right? The, the, the point initially was, look, let's give forward guidance. Let's tell the market what oh, we're doing on. so they're not surprised. So interest rates can Stay longer, but now they, they now they're just confusing us okay. because they're not living up to their. Um, it's not they're not promises granted, but they're not living up to their own forecast. Come on, Ira. One of the great joys of talking to you is you've been in the trenches of reacting to what economists say, doing interest rate strategy at Credit Suisse and others, and now with Oppenheimer funds. I mean, aren't we overthinking this? I mean, within all the reading of the weekend, it's all brilliant. I'm thrilled that Christopher Sims took the trophy for impact, but Marvin Goodfriend and everybody's weighed in. Larry Summers out with a scathing note 10 minutes ago. I just put it out on Twitter, folks. Ira, are we just overthinking this? We we probably are, quite frankly. Um, you, you know, we, we hang on every single word that comes out of the Federal Reserve because we think that it's going to mean something for markets. But ultimately, and over the longer period of time, it's going to be fundamentals, whether it's economics, whether it's, um, you know, animal spirits and how much, you know, debt issuance there is by either governments or corporations. It's it's ultimately, in the long term, it's fundamentals. And, all, and the Federal Reserve, at some point, is either going to have to hike because fundamentals are good or they're going 
going to remain flat because you know fundamentals are are iffy, and you know so really is the the data that we have to look at, and and quite frankly the longer term data. I mean the difference between what I used to do as a credit strategist and what we do now is is time frame really. You know I I used to care about a number and you know what was going to happen the next ten minutes after a number came out. Um, you know now I, I care oh, about so hey, now what is so now that you're without oh no stop now that you're at Oppenheimer funds you're out to 25 minutes right <laughs> well no much longer i mean we you know we do have long term focus here and you know so when we we okay, talk about 35 like our international <laughs> no no years i mean I you know, know so when we talk about our international bond fund for example you know what happens is we we look at our macro our macro outlook and we say what do we think is going to happen over the next 12 to 24 months in the terms of macro and then we look at what the market's pricing right so so one data point is not going to change our opinion as to the macro outlook. Now, if the markets move significantly, then that's when opportunities present themselves because, um, you know, we, we have a pretty good track record of, uh, of having a good long-term forecast. But if, you know, the dollar moves too much or if uh, interest rates in, you know, Europe or Japan or Brazil or, or the United States move too much, we can take advantage of that um, if, uh, if things look to get out of line based on where we think the fundamentals will ultimately end up. I mean, let me read a little bit here from the Larry Summers piece that, uh, that Tom's been referring to. He says he agrees with Ms. Yellen's observation that the case for a rate increase now is stronger than it was a few months ago. U.S. economy does appear to be gaining strength in the second half of the year. The Brexit shock has been easily absorbed and markets are unusually calm. But, and here's the salient point, I think to say that the case for a rate increase has strengthened is not to say it's reached the point of being persuasive. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, again, that's like nuance on top of nuance, I think. Uh, you know, Janet Yellen was attempting to be nuanced and, and say, look, we, you know, the case is higher, so the, and the market certainly responded to her, uh, you know, pointing out that the case was higher, because I think the, the expectation is, is that Ms. Yellen is a moderate to dovish member of the FOMC, so when she says that the case for hikes is higher, then the market has to believe it, that, that it is. And, and the market responded um, the, the way that one would want anticipate to that statement where, you know, you have a, a basically a, a three and four chance that the Fed's going to hike it by December. Um, I think Mr. Summers is, you know, he just wants some, some more clarity. And I think a lot of people in the markets, quite mm-hmm. frankly, uh, would like a lot more clarity from them and, and just live up to your expectations. It's almost like they should pare back things like the dot plots and just say, you know, yeah. just get rid of them. And, and, yeah. and their, their usefulness is, is I think, in the past. And Professor Summers includes the dot plots, plots he in does. his yes. uh, blog. Ira Jersey with us with Oppenheimer Funds as we look at the fixed income market. Ira, what is your counsel to portfolio managers at Oppenheimer Funds? What actually will rates do? Yeah, yeah. So in the long end, um, we want to stay pretty much, uh, pretty much market weight. So in line with where the benchmarks are, because I, I do think that the risks out in ten year and thirty year are pretty asymmetric, which is, you know, not, not something that I know a lot of people want to hear um, because everyone says, oh, yields are too low. There's no way 1.6% is sustainable. But when you have, like, BOJ Governor Kuroda coming out and saying, hey, we might cut interest rates more and uh, make the interest, uh, uh, interest rate uh, more negative in Japan, then, you know, demand for long-term assets uh, and any positive-yielding long-term assets is going to continue. So anyway, so we have to, I think, be careful 
control of, of the long end and, uh, and, and you know, make sure that you're, you're not overly uh, underweight there. I do think the front end, however, uh, is at risk. I do think that the, we're, we're still not 100% priced for the Fed to hike, and we're not pricing for multiple hikes next year either, and I think that that's a significant risk. So being underweight uh, two-year notes um, is, uh, is prudent at this point. What is this? So, so basically ahead, a continued curve flattener, but, but more bear flattening than, uh, uh, than bull flattening like we've seen. What is this, uh, this credit cycle going to turn as you see it right now? Yeah, we think we're in, in the latter half of the credit cycle. Um, so when we talk about credit cycle, we usually think about uh, corporate debt. Uh, so how much leveraging has has been going on, where we are in the profit cycle um, and, and the revenue cycle. And in general, at least for uh, investment-grade firms, you know, revenues have been holding up reasonably well. Uh, consumer spending is is okay. What what has been happening, and, and you know, when you talk to my former colleagues at Credit Suisse or you talk to a lot of other um, economists... They still speak? Do you? <laughs> oh, we we do. I'm a customer of theirs now. Oh so. no! Oh, there you go. There you go. Um, so so, but when you talk when you talk to them, one of the things that everyone talks about is profit share of gross domestic income has gone up so much since the financial crisis that we're at a point now where uh, wage share, so the amount that consumers make, have to has to go up relative to profits, and um, and and we're at a point, and and you see it in some of the GDP data that's coming out, and we'll get another again read of that in about eight minutes, is that has to improve, and and that's not a great thing for for profit growth. Um, so one of the things that that is going to continue probably to prop up risk assets like equities is going to be low interest rates globally, um, but fundamentals are not going to improve at the pace that they have before. So you're not likely to to see you know uh, multiple double digit gains um, year after year in, uh, yeah. um, in in things like risk assets. How does it fold over the credit markets? We were talking with Bob Prefusak of Jones Day earlier. This idea he's an M and A guy and an attorney, and you know he was talking about CFOs with the pressure to issue paper given the free money that's out there. Price up, yield low, low, low for corporations. Translate your world, Ira Jersey, over to the corporate realities of corporate bonds. Yeah, so so corporate uh, so corporate liquidity has been quite good actually. So there's been I know you know different bouts where people were worried about that, but demand for investment grade um, and even better high yield paper has been very uh, has been quite strong over the uh, course of this year. And we don't think that that's going to change. And again, that that is part of this whole low yield, uh, negative yield uh, world that we live in, where um, everyone needs to search for that. So if you're an insurance company that needs to have well you to be 6% yields, then it became 5% yields, and now if you're even trying to get a 4% yield, you need to go down to you know lower quality investment grade corporate paper in order to find that in in 10 year and 30 year uh, debt. But right. luckily, you know the market's making a lot of that paper, so so and uh, so supply oh, is, is meeting demand, and and uh, you, you have tighter and tighter credit spreads. They're not nearly as attractive. Okay. spreads are not nearly as attractive. I want to get but you it's all down to fundamentals. Uh, quickly here, I want to get you in trouble with your. General counsel quickly is the only way to do it. Does this end ugly or can buy side managers manage their way to nirvana when all this ends? Well, I think that's all about uh, controlling risk. And so one of the things that, that we always ask ourselves when we go into our meetings uh, for our, uh, with our bond fund managers is, what are the risks in the portfolio? How can we manage those risks? And do we have the appropriate risk? So we, we're always asking ourselves um, about the, the risks in the portfolio. And do we have risk that seems appropriate for both the environment and based on our customer's mandate in those particular funds?
Ira, thank you so much. Seriously, really quite valuable today. Ira Jersey with Oppenheimer Funds. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.